After some time away, we're coming back to the book of John, and so I'd invite you to open up your scriptures with me to John chapter 12. There's Red Pew Bibles in front of you, page 762. We're going to start reading John chapter 12, verse 27. Verse 27. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered, and others said an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We've heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. Put your trust in the light while you have it, so that you may become sons of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. This is God's word for us. Well, good morning. My name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. It's my privilege to uh, share from God's word uh, this morning to us. We are returning to, as Mark alluded to, returning to John's gospel here at Cornerstone. Our practice, our tendency is to work our way through whole books of uh, the scripture. Um, we think it's important for that to let all of what God's word says to us, to, to, to uh, resonate with us, to speak into our lives. And that's why um, we think there's a, we put a high priority on regularly showing up here so that we would have all of God's word. Paul says to um, one of the churches that he ministered to that he did not uh, shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God to them. He, he shared all that God had uh, to say uh, with uh, the people that he served. And so it, it is important that we regularly gather here under God's word and we go through, um, and not just our favorite text, but to go through the entire scripture together to hear all that God would have to say to us. I was reminded of that a couple of times this week. I had two different conversations with people who said, you know, something that I said in a sermon a number of months ago was really, really helpful uh, to them in the current situation. I'm like, man, I don't really remember saying that, but sounds like something I'd say. So I'll take, uh, you know, okay, we'll go with that. And um, it just reminded, you know, it's, it's the regular, you never know when God's going to um, meet you and give you those things you need. We need to be regularly feeding on God's word. You know, it's not so important that you ate breakfast on April 3rd of this year, but it's rather the regular practice of you eating and what you eat determines your shape, right? Or your health. And, and so we're shaped really by that regular diet. And, um, and so it's not any one necessarily gathering and not any one... Uh, specific time of reading God's word, although some are specifically very meaningful for us. It's the regular ongoing of, uh, practice of going through the scriptures that shapes us into the image of Jesus. And so we're here in John's gospel. We have preached, I think, 41 sermons so far to get us to John chapter 12, verse 27. We're returning here for a couple of weeks, and then uh, Advent, we're going to be doing a series in Colossians chapter 1. 
and, uh, and then returning back to John's gospel again in the new year. Now, we haven't been here since February, and um, really the passage we read is, is a continuation of a passage we talked about in, uh, towards the end of February of this year, where uh, some Greek people come to some of Jesus' disciples and say, we'd like to, we'd like to have some time with Jesus, which is very, really the very first time that someone of a non-Jewish heritage is asking and inquiring about Jesus. <coughs> Sorry about my voice here. It may have something to do with me yelling at referees yesterday at the arena. I'm a sinner, and I need your prayers. Um, and so Jesus, in response to this request for Greek people to meet with him, says, starts talking about his death. Starts talking about his hour. Now, in John's gospel, we know that whenever Jesus talks about his hour, he's talking about his finest hour, the defining hour of his life, which is his crucifixion on the cross. And so it's always referring to, uh, to that. And, uh, and so he, he picks that up again in this passage that we've read together this morning as well. And it's a trigger for him, this request from the Greeks. It's a trigger for him. It, it jogs his memory as to why he's come and what his death will accomplish. That his death is actually the, the opening wide of the doors to Gentiles, to non-Jewish people, to enter into God's family, which has always been God's heart and plan for, uh, for Israel. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. How God's plan always was to, wide open, to send the doors wide open to all families of the earth. And as a kind of Dutch... Scottish half-breed, I'm really thankful that the message of the gospel has been thrown wide open to include Gentiles like me. I'm not sure if there are any people of Jewish origin in the, in the room here today, but for the vast majority of us, this is incredibly good news that, the, that Jesus didn't come only for the Jews, but he came for the Greeks, for the pagans, for the Scots, for the, the Dutch, and even a few of the Mennonites. And so... He's talking about glory, though. This is a, a passage uh, about glory. And um, in, in the last time I spoke on, in John's Gospel, I actually defined and, and really focused in on what glory is. And I don't know, you probably don't remember that. I barely remember it. But glory is weightiness, significance. When we talk about the glory of God, that's a, you might say that's theological jargon, that's Christianese, and we don't really talk about glory anywhere else. Um, and those of us who've grown up in the church can kind of just run by that word. We think, yeah, I kind of know what glory is. Um, but glory, it's really important. It's an important theological word. It's in, it's, as you see it, you'll see it all throughout the scripture. I'm talking about the glory of God and living for the glory of, glory of God and living our lives to glorify God. We've already sang about that this morning. I live for your glory. What does that mean? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. What does it mean to live for the glory of God? What does it mean to see the glory of God? What does it mean to experience the glory of God? And how do I receive the, the glory of God? How do I experience the glory of God? Where do I need to go for that? So glory, though, is, is, carries with it this, this um, idea of the immensity of God, how massive he is, how, how expansive he is, how how, how all of his characteristics are going public. It's the going public of who God is. It's the manifestation, which is another 
churchy word, but it's the, it's the, it's the showing of what he's like. It's the showing of what he's like. And when we see what he's like, we see that he's significant, that, he's, he's, that he matters, that he's of importance. That's what his glory, it, it, it's really a word that means weighty. And, and, and it has a, a connotation of beauty as well, of his significance. So it's more than theological jargon. I hope to show us today that it has great relevance to your life. In fact, the scriptures would say that if you, if you have no God, there is no glory. If you have no God, there is no glory, which leads to societal problems, which leads to even psychological problems. Um, you know, for, in society, we've tried to build our society in at least the last number of decades. We've been trying to build our society... Uh, on a foundation that doesn't include God. And see, every society needs to answer the question, what's, what's of truly lasting significance? What, what really matters in this world? What really matters for a society to, um, to hold as common values? And we've been trying to build a society with, on, uh, on, on, on this idea that we don't need a God in order to build a good society will just come to consensus about what's important. And so our society comes to the conclusion that things like human dignity, human rights uh, are, are important, that honesty, that freedom is of this high value. Now, if you want to be religious, fine. You just keep that to yourself and let us now build a society apart from God. But the reality is, is that Without the glory of God, without the, the, the immensity of God, and, and societies have in, in the past have always referred to religious um, terms to define what's weighty, what's important, what's going what's gonna to last, what, what has significance, what has glory. And so trying to build it apart from God is like trying to grasp the wind. So think about human dignity, for example, human rights. And try to convince someone that you should sacrifice your personal comfort for the human dignity or for the human rights of others. How do you, how do you make that argument without appealing to a greater story, without appealing to a greater cause, without appealing to eternity, that what you do now matters forever, that the, the kingdoms we build now matter forever, that the kind of society we create now matters Forever, how do you do that apart? How do you make that argument that you should sacrifice your personal comforts, your personal affluence for the sake of someone else? How do you do that? It's impossible. It's impossible. If there's no God, there's no glory. You see, if there's no God, all history, all civilization is inconsequential because this world wraps up with the burning up of the sun or some explosion, some life, all civilization gone, all human life gone. And so Frederick Nietzsche was right that it doesn't, if, you, if there is no God, it doesn't matter if you live a life of compassion or of violence. If there is no God, your life ultimately doesn't matter because it will ultimately be forgotten because it has no lasting significance. 
in a million years from now, it will make no difference whether you lived like Hitler or lived like Mother Teresa. It makes no difference a million years from now. We're all dead anyway. And no one's surviving. If there's no God, then nothing matters. If there's no glory, our society's built on a, on a sandy foundation. It's going to crumble. And so we're, we're living in this, you know, we're awash in a sea of relativism that has no firm foundations of glory, nothing lasting, nothing, nothing, nothing that matters, nothing of significance. Now, um, Jeff and I were at a, a talk a few weeks ago of someone who's seeking to do, do cultural renewal in, in, the, in the institutions of, of our society. And he says, what you need to look for is cracks in the secular. Look for cracks in the secular where this secular society that we're trying to build, this society we're trying to build apart from, from God, apart from the supernatural, apart from anything of lasting significance, he says it's unsustainable and there always are cracks in the secular. There's always cracks in the secular. The crack in the secular right now is what's, what's coming out in the news you know, every, you know, every day. These Hollywood sex scandals, right? Of, of, of sexual abuse and violence. And, and so this industry that has really made it, its, its, its vision and its driving force for decades has been to demonstrate that sex is something that, you know, is really a meaningless commodity that can be traded between any two adults. All of a sudden, they're realizing what are the consequences of that worldview. What are the consequences? What, what are the lives of those who are pushing this? What's underneath it? What's, what's, what's the reality? And we see this violence. And so I read someone yesterday, a kind of a cultural commentator, say it's almost as if sex is not a meaningless commodity traded between adults, but in fact an act so deeply powerful that we should consider wrapping it in an institution of personal commitment and public accountability. Did you catch that? It's almost as if sex is not a meaningless commodity traded between adults, but in fact an act so deeply powerful that we should consider wrapping it in an institution of personal commitment and public accountability, which is marriage. So there's cracks in the secular. There's always cracks in the secular because our society can't sustain building itself with no glory, with no God. Now, it's got psychological effects, too. You know, all, many of us, all of us are haunted with this question. Do I matter? Does my life count? Especially as we get up there in years. Does my life matter? Will anyone remember me? And the truth is, without God, you're weightless. But with God, you can experience much glory. You can experience His glory. So the questions I want to I want to really deal with today are how do we experience God's glory? What's it like to experience God's glory? This the answers are here in our text actually. I'm not just going out there. I'm trying to be rooted here in the text although I'm it's more of a so what message than a what message, right? Two kinds of sermons. Sometimes we deal with what? What is the saying? Other times it's so what? So what are the, what are the applications? Why does this matter to us? So 
Go back to February if you want to, in the previous sermon in the series, if you want the what. What is the glory of God all about? Here's the so what. What's it like to experience God's glory? What's it like to experience God's glory? What does it mean? Why is it very practical? Why is it a very daily experience for all of us to experience God's glory? So the Father, so that's the first point here is, what's it like to experience God's glory? The Father says, Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. He says his soul is deeply troubled because he's come to his hour, to the hour of his death. And he says, but what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No way. That's the very reason I've come. I've come to die. This, this hour is the reason I've come to earth. This reason I've, I've taken on flesh. This reason I've had this ministry. This reason that I'm on this quest of salvation is for this very hour. And so I, he says, Father, glorify your name. And the Father responds with this audible voice that sounds like thunder. I have glorified it and I will glorify it. You see, I've shared many times uh, in my ministry here how God does everything he does for his glory. That God is 100% committed to his glory. That God does what he does and because of his glory, to make his glory known. The reason he speaks to us is to make his glory known to us. In fact, the scriptures would go far as to say that a Christian, the definition of a Christian, is someone who's experienced the glory of God, the weightiness, the importance, the significance of God. John 17, Jesus is praying, and we'll get there in a couple of months probably. I've given them the glory that you've gave me. I've given them, my disciples, I've given them the glory that you have given me. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4 that to be a Christian is someone whom God has said, let light shine out of darkness, has now shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. A Christian is someone who has had the lights turned on in their hearts, that God's shone in their hearts the light, the light of what? The knowledge, so we know the glory of God. And we've seen it in the face of Christ Jesus, he says. That a Christian is someone who's had their heart illuminated to see, to know the glory of God in Jesus. Christ in you, the hope of glory. To have Jesus in your heart is to know the hope of glory. So what does it mean to experience the glory of God? Is it some kind of light from heaven? Again, sometimes we think glory and light, but glory is not light. Glory is weightiness, significance, importance. And so to experience the glory of God is to come to the understanding, to come to the realization that God is the most important thing in my life. That's what it means to see the glory of God. It means to see that God is the most important thing, the most important person in my life. To put it as simply as I can. To experience the glory of God is to experience the truth that God is more important than anything else. You see, our hearts are, are, are tuned towards religion, which is, 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 a, is, is an earning kind of thing. And in religion, God's important in my life. When we become religious, God's important, but he's more of an add-on to my life. 
I'll pray when I'm in trouble, right? When things aren't going well, then I'll pray. Or I think about God on Sunday mornings when I'm here. But really, he's not affecting Monday afternoon or Saturday night. But to experience the glory of God means to realize that God and his truth of who he is is the most important thing about my life. And so a Christian is someone who examines their whole life and, and reorganizes all of it. And asks questions like, well, does God and does God's will for, for my life, does that impact the way that I work? Does it drive the way I think? Does God and his will for me change my desires, what I want, what I'm hoping for, what I'm dreaming for? Does God and what he says is true, does that influence my sexuality? Does God and what he says inform how I use my possessions? Does God and what he says is true inform the kinds of relationships I have and how I act within those relationships? Is he the center of everything in my life? That's what it means to experience the glory of God, is that that the light goes on, that you see that God is more important than anything else, and you begin to reorganize your life and reprioritize your life so that what he says is changing everything. And it's only when the glory of God dawns on you and overwhelms your soul that we begin to ask, how can I honor God with everything, with every part of my life? Now, friends, you want this. You want this. Deep down, we want God to be most important. We, you know, we want to be unflappable and unruffled. We want to be steady in tough times. And maybe you know some people who, who just love people, even in difficult circumstances. And, and, and the reason people can do that is because nothing matters to them except God. Nothing matters except God. And so you can get awards and you can experience success and you don't get too high because it really doesn't ultimately matter to you except what God says about you and God says who you are. And so in failures or when you're insulted, when you're offended, it's what God says about you that's most important. So have you seen the glory of God? Is he the center of everything you do? And when you hear the gospel and when the gospel of Jesus dawns on you that the most important thing in your life is to the forgiveness of God, to know God, to relate to Him in a personal relationship, and to give my whole life to Him, that that's the most important thing. That's what it's like to experience the glory of God, to know that relationship with God through Jesus is what's most important, what defines my life more than anything else. So that's the first question. What's it like to experience the glory of God? Second question I want to dive into in this text is where do I see the glory of God? What's it like? Where do I go to experience God's glory? What do I do about it? If I want to experience the glory of God, I, I want to experience the truth that God is most important in my life. What do, I, what do I do? Do I just sit around and wait until kind of the light goes on, until I have some kind of supernatural experience of that? Do I just sit around and wait for it? Well, this text would say we need to go to the cross of Jesus. 
that it's the cross of Jesus where the glory of God is seen most clearly. See, Jesus says, you know, I'm, I'm deeply troubled. My soul is troubled. I'm scared. Like, I'm, I'm turbulent inside. The sense of that word, I'm, 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 it's deeply turbulent, turbulent inside. I'm, my, my stomach's rolling over. I'm scared. I'm troubled of this hour. But this is why I come, because my death, my hour glorifies you, Father. And so for us to see the glory of God, we must go to the cross. We must go to the cross. We say, well, I thought the heavens are telling the glory of God. That's Psalm 19. I thought I could experience the glory of God by going and looking at the Rocky Mountains or the Pacific Ocean. And it's true. It's true. You can experience and have a sense of the beauty and the power, the immensity of God by, by pondering a massive mountain or a massive ocean or looking at the sky and trying to fathom how far away those huge stars are that look like pinpricks of light and how immense must the God who made them be and how beautiful he must be. But friends, these are but a reflection of his glory. To see the full blaze of his glory, we must go to the cross of Jesus. And so what does it mean? What does it mean to glory in the cross of Jesus. Paul writes about this in Galatians 6. He says, God forbid that I glory in anything save the cross of Jesus. It means to believe that, it means more than to believe that Jesus died for you. To glory in it is a discipline, is an act of our will, and to count it as the most important thing about us, the fact that Jesus died for me. That the most important thing about me is that Jesus has died for me. So how does the cross show the glory of God? How does the cross show the glory of God? Well, it really takes the entire New Testament to unpack this, but we see as you look at the New Testament and the message of the cross that the cross shows how all of God's qualities, all of his attributes, what he's like, they all come together and meet at the cross. And, and we see those things coming together and meeting at the cross um, like nowhere else. Like nowhere else. So the justice of God and the love of God and the grace of God and the wisdom of God, they all come together at the cross like a place like no other. You know, there's a debate in the, in the church world, and I'm not sure how many of you are nerds like me, but... Um, the debate is, you know, whether God is a God of wrath or not. People don't want a God who's mad. And so um, there's a whole school of thought that is saying that, you know, the cross is really this demonstration of self-sacrifice. And it's a very inspiring uh, example for us that Jesus has, has done. He's showing us a, a life of self-sacrifice. I don't think that that view really can explain for why Jesus is so troubled here. Why he's so turbulent inside. He knew that he was on the greatest quest of the ages. What, what made the man who could do anything tremble? Right? This is the guy who walked on water, turned water into wine, healed lepers, made dead people live, opened the eyes of the blind. He could do anything. 
the, the, the most mighty guy who's ever walked the face of the planet is shaking in his boots. Why is he trembling? Because he was beginning to feel the weight of our sin. He was anticipating the wrath of God on sin coming on him. You see, there's no greater agony. Many of us know this. There's no greater agony than to have love ripped away from you. There's no greater agony than to have love taken from you. Where a child or a spouse or a parent is taken away by death or by divorce. The agony of that. And the experience of having that love. And the experience of that love, having that ripped away. Is terribly agonizing. Friends, from all eternity, Jesus, as God the Son, lived with under the full experience of the love of the Father. Every moment of, of eternity, he has experienced the undiluted love of God, the Father, in this beautiful, harmonious relationship in the Holy Spirit, this dance of love, this, this incredible perfect and eternal and infinite experience of perfect love. And he knew that the experience of having that ripped away was coming. And so he came to the place of losing all of his glory. And that all of the experience of that love, that he was utterly forsaken, he cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you cast me out. I'm, I'm not experiencing your love right now. Your lo- the experience of your love has been ripped away from me. So imagine the agony of being forgotten by the only one who really matters. Right? That's what high school is all about, right? Getting the people who, who, you, who really matter to like you. Some of us haven't moved on from high school, but that's another point. Right? And we just, we all have that one person in our life. That person matters, and I want, I want to be their friend, and until I'm their friend, nothing matters. Imagine the agony of being forgotten, as being treated as insignificant, as being, as being forgotten, as being cast away, as being treated as insignificant by the only one who really, really matters. Ignored by the one whose love can ultimately fulfill us. See, Jesus knew the fulfillment of that perfect, infinite, eternal love and he was troubled because he knew that experience was being ripped away from him it was going to be ripped away and so then imagine the agony of being forgotten by the only one who really matters and then take all of our hells which is what that is and to take that all for all eternity and to condense it down to a moment and then pour that on jesus imagine the acidity of that Imagine the agony of that, the horror of that. That's why Jesus is troubled. And now maybe you say, why? You know, did God really have to kill his son? I get that question a fair bit. Did God really have to kill his son? Was my sin really that bad? Was this all really necessary? Why couldn't God just forgive us? Forget about it. Right? Let's forget about it and move on. The cross shows us God's holiness and his justice. 
Imagine a judge saying to Paul Bernardo, go free. Forget about it. Imagine a judge saying to Osama bin Laden, don't worry about it. You're free. You're innocent. There'd be uproar. Our God is a God of justice. And the cross is proof of that. That sin, that injustice, that cruelty, that hatred must be punished. Will be dealt with. But at the same time, we see the glory, the importance, the immensity of his love. That was me. Which one of you texted me? (laughs) We see not only the perfection and the the immensity of his justice, that he is, that his, the, but that also the immensity of his love, that not only did he go to the cross for us, he was glad to do it. That's why he came. And this wasn't just someone, random person stepping in. This was God punishing sin in himself. Taking it on himself. We see his wisdom and his love and his justice and his holiness. and his. The cross shows us that God is glorious more than anything else. That, that God is most important. And that for me to see his glory means for me to see his significance in the cross. That the cross tells me who I am. That Jesus died for me. He experienced that for me. So the most important thing about me isn't who my friends are or how great my family is or what great vacation I got planned. The most important thing about me isn't my success in my career, isn't the status of my bank account. The most important thing about me is that Jesus has saved me by the cross, that he's dealt with my sin, that I'm forgiven, that my shame is done away with. That's the most important thing about me. And so at the cross, we see the depth of our sin, the holiness and the justice of God, the love of God, and we glory in it. We say, that's amazing. That's that's incredible. That blows my mind that God would do that for me. So how do I receive it? How do I receive the glory of God? How do I experience it? That's what it's like. It's like experiencing glory that God is understanding and seeing that God's the most important thing. We go to the cross to see it. To see that's what's most important. That's why God's most important. How do I receive it? Paul says in Galatians, God forbid that I would glory in anything except the cross of Jesus. We recognize, we need to recognize the other things we glory in. We need to understand what do we see as significant about us. Where do I draw my significance from? Is it my career? Is it my success in my career? Is it the relationships I have? The circle of friends I have? Is it, the, is it how well my kids are behaved this morning? Is it my bank account? What is it? What do I glory in? Where do I find significance? I remember listening to the testimony of a woman who was sharing how for a period of decades... It was one boyfriend to the next, where there was literally not a day in between. 
that in order for her to feel significant, she needed the love of a man. And she began to see how um, detrimental that was to her, how it was actually ruining her life, that she could only feel worthwhile and significant if she had the love of a man. And so she went to a counselor and says, yes, you've got that Cinderella complex. You need, like, for, in order for you to feel worthwhile and significant, you need the love of a man. So what you need to do is you need to go get a career so you can feel significant about yourself just for who you are. And she said, well, won't I be in just the same kind of bondage to my career then? And the counselor was like, yeah, you kind of will be. If your career doesn't go well, then you're going to feel insignificant. And she came to Jesus, and she says, it was there that she got new significance. If someone like Jesus would do that for me, then I can know that I matter. You see, when we go seeking glory... We are ultimately missing it. But if we go seeking Jesus, we actually get glory. Is it C.S. Lewis who said, you know, seek the things of earth and you'll never quite get there. But seek the things of heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Seek Jesus not for what he can do for you, but for himself. Because he's worthy. Because he's important and significant and glorious and beautiful and good. Seek him for who he is and you get the glory, the significance, the honor thrown in. Someone like that would do that for me. Then I can know that I matter. And so repentance. So the, the, the scriptures say that we receive the glory of God through, through two movements. And they're, they're movements that can't go one without the other. One is repentance and the other is faith. Repentance means to turn around. Repentance means I was going this direction and I need to turn I need to change my mind. I need to understand what I'm glorying in. What, where, I, where am I looking for significance and importance? Where am I looking for those things that really matter, that, that tell me that I matter? And we need to renounce those things. And say, ultimately, I won't find my significance there. They're not going to be most important. I'm not going to base my life on this. I'm going to base my life then on what? And that's faith. Faith is saying, Jesus. I'm reaching out to you. You're most important. You're first. You're central. You're the place where I can experience true and lasting and fulfilling love. So repentance and faith. Stop glorying in everything else and glory in the cross of Jesus. That the most important thing about me is that Jesus died for me. See, the angels came to earth and said, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, on those in whom his favor rests. You'll never have peace until you experience the glory of God. And so today I want to invite you to glory in the cross. I want to invite you to repent. I want to invite you to believe in Christ again. I want to invite you to confess before God and each other, these are the things that I've been treating as most important. This is where I've been seeking significance. This is where I've been seeking honor. This is, where, this is what I've made most important in my life. And it's driving me. It's, it's, what's, it's what's driving my decisions. And today I see the cross. 
Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all kinds of people to me. He says that in this text, which tells me a couple things about coming to Jesus. John explains, he says, he said this to tell us what kind of death he would die, that he was going to die a death on the cross. And I would never have guessed that unless that verse was there. When I am lifted up, we think, when I am praised and exalted, crucified. I'm going to draw all kinds of people to me. All kinds of people will be attracted to me. Are you attracted to Jesus today? Is he, do you see him as beautiful, as glorious, as important and significant? That's how you come to Jesus. You come to him attracted to him, drawn by him, not forced. You know, the church has often tried to scare the hell out of people, right? And you try to, you know, come to, you try to get people really, really scared. Scared of hell, scared of life without Jesus, and and, and use fear as the motivator. You know what's the great motivator? Beauty. Glory. Do you see Jesus is beautiful this morning? That he would willingly die for you? That he would take the wrath of God against your sin? Against the rebellion of you glorying in so many other lesser things? That he would take that all on himself in order to open wide the door for you to come to him? Are you attracted to him today? You can come to him. You can believe in him. You can, you can experience the, the great joy of knowing that the most important thing about you is that the most important one who has ever lived and ever walked this planet came to die for you so that he could be with you forever. And so that you could be welcomed in to this experience of infinite, eternal, perfect, and fulfilling love. You can know that today. And I want nothing more for you than for you to have that experience. And so, Father, we come to you this morning. And we want to glory in the cross. And, Father, I know that there are in this room men and women and boys and girls, Lord, who, who may have been baptized, who may have confessed you with their lips as a get-out-of-hell ticket, but have never seen your beauty, your glory in the cross. And I pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit, that you would send the Spirit of God here to unveil our eyes, that this morning we, in a new way, in a fresh way, would see the beauty, the significance, the importance of King Jesus, and that we would bow the knee to him. And so if you're in that place, maybe you've never done that. I'd invite you to just pray, God in heaven, I want to turn my life towards you this morning. And I see that you're beautiful. I see that your love is beautiful. And I want to experience your forgiveness, your embrace through Jesus this morning. So, Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If the Lord's working in your heart, I'd encourage you to share that with someone. We have a few moments called connection time. You have the opportunity to share with each other. If maybe you've prayed that prayer for the first time, I'd love to pray with you. We have other 
leaders in our church that would just love to pray with you and encourage you on your walk with the Lord Jesus.